But we can look to uh, the Bible now, to Romans chapter 16, and to the end of uh, Romans. Uh, it's the sort of, it's the end of a masterpiece. Uh, imagine uh, Rembrandt uh, finishing that great painting, Jeremiah, that's my favorite, it's a very sort of sober, dark painting, and you can imagine him as he finished the, the, the end of that masterpiece, and uh, the, the last few flourishes of his brush, and uh, then he signs at the bottom, Rembrandt Van Rijn. And uh, that's what the apostle is doing here. He's finishing a masterpiece and he's signing off at the end. And I have to say that some of the themes that emerge in this passage are completely appropriate for the end of a stage of ministry. And there are things in this passage that I would long for and pray for for you as a congregation as I move on in ministry. So let's bow our heads and pray that we'll learn together from this passage. Father, we do thank you that we are safe in your hands and under your word. And we pray, Lord, that wherever we go, wherever we live, that we would always uh, be confident in your care and in your word. And Lord, as we look at this passage and think about the the future of TBT, as Paul thought about the future of the Romans, we pray, Lord God, you'd help us to learn things for ourselves here, that this might be a church that takes to heart the things that the apostle taught to the Romans then. And we ask it for the glory of the Lord Jesus, whom he taught. Amen. Well, we've come a long way. We've come to the end of Romans, uh, which, as you know, is Mount Everest in the Bible. It's just the the great peak. It's the the glorious book. If you want to spend your life studying one book in the Bible, make it Romans. And uh, it may well be that now that you've come to the, uh, the end of the studies in church, it's time to go back to it as a couple or as an individual and read Romans and really get into it and, and learn it and have a crack at, it, at learning it again now that we've come to the end of it. Let me remind you what the book says in just a couple of sentences. If you remember from chapter 1, God's gospel reveals his righteousness. God's gospel reveals his righteousness for all. Chapters 1 to 3. The whole world needs this righteousness. We can't get into heaven without it. We don't have it, but it's available to all. Chapters 3 to 4, through faith in Christ. If you want the righteousness of God to live with God forever, put your faith in Christ. That's how you receive the righteousness of God. This is for glory, chapters 5 to 8. That despite sin and uh, law and death, that if we put our faith in Christ, we're kept safe for glory, as was promised, chapters 9 to 11. The unbelief of the Jews doesn't uh, negate God's promise. God had always promised it would be thus. So as promised, chapters 9 to 11, for our worship in unity, as a church, we together worship God in mission to the nations, chapters 5 to 16. So God's gospel reveals his righteousness, chapter 1, for all, chapters 1 to 3, Through faith in Christ, chapters 3 to 4. For eternal glory, chapters 5 to 8. As promised, chapters 9 to 11. For worship in unity, chapters 12 to 14. In mission to the nations, chapters 15 to 16. So as the apostle ends this uh, book, he's saying farewell. He wants to appreciate the ministry of of others. He wants to warn against divisive teachers. Uh, He wants to uh, praise God for the gospel. And as he comes to the end of the book, he very much much wants to draw people back to the beginning of the book and to mission uh, to the world. Uh, Frankly, I think the apostle, and certainly God, is not interested in whether we can remember all the divisions of Romans 
He's not so much interested in whether we can uh, quote the whole of Romans. He's interested in whether we will live by it. And, and that is demonstrated by whether we will commit to mission. Whether you are committed to making this glorious gospel of God known to our neighbors and to the nations. So understanding and living by Romans is about living for mission. And I hope as a church that uh, you, will, uh, you will do that. The, uh, the danger of not doing so is dreadful. The book of Romans has explained that the world remains under the wrath of God without Christ. And unless we tell them, they will not be saved. I was uh, reading this week of uh, that uh, tragic mistake in uh, December 1941 uh, when the Japanese um, uh, fleet um, attacked the United States uh, Pacific Fleet at Pearl Harbor in Hawaii. And uh, Archbishop, Archbishop uh, Ambassador, that's right, it wasn't an Archbishop, it was an Ambassador, Namura, um, was unfortunately confused about the message that he was supposed to, to tell to the American government. He was supposed to see Secretary of State Cordell uh, to declare war on America uh, so that they would be ready for the attack when it came. But uh, he unfortunately delayed his meeting. He never got to speak to Sec- Secretary of State Cordell until after the attack. And as you'll know from the Pearl Harbor film starring Ben Affleck, which is, of course, historically completely accurate in every detail. There was, of course, tragic disaster engulfed uh, all those people, and so many died uh, because of that uh, delay in spending, sending the message uh, that was needed. And uh, how much greater is the, the, the damage done by not taking the gospel uh, to the nations? And that's the effect of Romans, to call us to mission. But as the apostle ends his letter, as uh, I step, move on in my role in ministry, three things. Firstly... Appreciate the ministry of others. Verses 1 to 16. Appreciate the ministry of others. I hope that you will be and continue to be a church that appreciates the ministry of others. I'm not going to read all those names, which you'll be very relieved about. But just to point out to you that far from being a cold, harsh theologian, the Apostle Paul emerges in these verses as a warm-hearted an affectionate man full of gratitude for the teams of people who, has, who have helped him and whom he is writing to. Perhaps for his own team, verses 1 to 7, and more for the Romans in verses 8 to 16. And it's tempting to, to rush over the lists of names in the Bible, when actually there are often little gold nuggets just buried in the hillside, and you could miss them unless you go slowly over them. And actually, there's all kinds of things to learn. In particular, we learn of the apostles' sense of partnership in the gospel. Even being an apostle, Paul was never a one-man band. He needed the support of all kinds of Christians. He trained them to work together. And he expected everyone to do what they could in the cause of the gospel. And I trust that this congregation will never become a one-man band. That everyone will do what they can to contribute to gospel ministry. And it's very striking that the apostle thanks all kinds of people. Uh, Paul clearly worked with a wide variety of co-workers and uh, very diverse groups of people. Uh, For example, there's this uh, lovely woman, Phoebe, in verses 1 to 3, who appears to have been a deacon in the church of Kenkri, which is just near Corinth from where Paul probably wrote this letter of Romans and probably was carrying the letter, so she was entrusted with it. And uh, the word is used of her that she was uh, a backer or a patron. Probably not legally, probably women couldn't be in those days, But I think the apostle is implying that she had been financially, in many other ways, a massive backer uh, to the the ministry. 
and uh, uh, there, she, she is uh, the, the kind of person whom he can trust and entrust this letter to, just as there are such women in this congregation. There are eminent names here in this um, uh, list. Some of them are clearly worked in the palace, and perhaps the naming them provides some legitimacy to his, um, his preaching. This, you know, there are some eminent people here, as there have been some eminent people in this congregation. But there are also the names of lots of slaves and freedmen. There are Greek, Roman, and Latin names. You know, it's not just a middle-class thing. There's a whole variety of people who are involved. And perhaps most noticeably, notably, there are many women, many women warmly commended for their uh, ministry. And uh, far from being the misogynist, the woman-hater that Paul is often described as, he clearly greatly appreciates them, and they were clearly glad to work with him. Now, of course, when uh, General Synod had voted earlier this week to appoint women as um, uh, bishops, they've completely gone against the teaching of the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, um, that although men and women are equal, as in all human relations, all human beings are, are equally valuable and precious to God, there is order in uh, relationships, and there is, like, as there is order in God. As God is Father, Son, and Spirit, equally God, but in order in relationship. So in all human relationships, you know, employers, employees, government, citizens, and also in churches, uh, there is order to the, to the relationship. And just as in a family, it ought to be the men who lead and not the women. And so although he um, uh, plainly appreciates these women, and although he's taught that women shouldn't lead the church, He's quick to commend them. He's quick to commend them for their work in ministry. And as I look back over the seven years here, one of the things that I'll most remember is actually the support of some of the senior women here. That the sisterhood, if you like. You know, people like Anne Watt and Annalise Selheim and uh, Helena and uh, the others sitting at, at the back um, over there and Sarah Brown and uh, Katie Herald and Camilla and, and the others. You know them. They've been here since the beginning. And they've been such loyal workers. I've probably missed some people out. And please don't be upset. I was just making it up. But um, some, of those, some, of the, some of the women who've been here who so loyally supported me and the ministry here. And I want to commend them. Notice the apostle also supports those in Christ. He repeatedly greets people in Christ and in the Lord. So these greetings, they're much more than just a sort of secular courtesy. He's not just saying, hi, everybody. He's greeting them in the context of knowing Christ. He's, he's greeting those who share faith and salvation and unity in Christ, which brings specially deep affection. And if you're not yet a Christian, you may have noticed about Christians, there's this deep affection for one another. And it, uh, it can cross many, many miles. You can go anywhere in the world, and you'll find this deep affection in Christ. He calls some of them beloved, of others, he uses family terminology. Because in Christ, a church is like a family. Christians relate like family. Moreover, he thanks people from various house churches. At least five house churches are mentioned here. Uh, we don't have many there were in Rome. Uh, there could have been many, many, and they could have been large as well as small, as many as 50 perhaps. Some of the larger houses could have, could have accommodated quite large crowds. They, they didn't have uh, ancient buildings like this to, to meet in. Uh, and so they met in homes. And uh, actually, it's a model of ministry we ought to be exploring. Where we can't get buildings, what's wrong with house churches? That's what Christians have been doing around the world ever since churches began. The greetings from the churches in verse 16 probably convey Paul's sense of unity in the gospel, 
with churches far and wide as he greets uh, those whom he's writing to. And uh, his uh, uh, greeting one another with a, with a holy kiss, um, you know, it's, it's not a set liturgy, it's, you know, it's nothing like that. It's just a, a, a Middle Eastern greeting, but it's a sign of affection. He says, greet one another in holiness with great affection and deep warmth and feeling for one another. And one of the things people have always said about coming to TBT is there's a tremendous sense of a unity and warmth and friendship here. And the Spirit of God produces that in us. And we thank him for it. But he praises them for gospel work. So all kinds of people in Christ from various house churches for gospel work. These public commendations, they're all positive. It's interesting, he keeps his negative comments for private. So they're all positive. Uh, And they're they're not exaggerated. Uh, So they're sober because they're true. And uh, there's no reference to gifting. He doesn't say, um, he doesn't praise them for being gifted uh, because gifts come from God. So he's not saying, what an able bunch you all are. He's not interested in that. What he's interested in is their, uh, the, well, the repeated emphasis upon hard work, upon loyal support, upon courage in gospel ministry. In other words, for the godliness of the people. And how I want to thank so many here, perhaps everyone here, for their hard work, for their loyal support, for their courage in ministry, especially when it's been difficult. So I would want to encourage you to learn from the apostle, to appreciate the team ministry of any church. Of course, there are those who stand out the front. By all means, pray for them and thank them. But also remember there are lots of people behind the scenes working hard. Don't forget to thank them and to pray for them. To recognize that there are many patrons, there are many workers, there are many missionaries involved in the work of a church. In other words, this is a team ministry. This congregation has always been teamwork. Uh, may it continue uh, to be. I was in, preaching in church this morning, and somebody came up to me afterwards and was mocking my dress, saying, I've never met a vicar before, it looks like you do. I hadn't quite noticed what was wrong with what he said. Well, asked what color my shirt was. I think it was a pukey pink. And uh, I thought I'd wear it for you because it's been a tradition here. You can break it now. Um, but, and he was surprised, you see, that as a vicar, you sit amongst the crowd and you just sit with everybody else. And the reason is because we're a team. No one's more special than anybody else. We need each other and we appreciate each other. We're a team. In other words, we're not a sort of bus with one man driving and all the passengers sitting in the back admiring the view. Um, you know, we're much more like an orchestra. Um, now, I don't know what it's like with an orchestra. I don't know anything about music. But it seems to me if you take some instruments and, and listen to them on their own, you know, a violin can sound dreadful, can't it, on its own, you know. <laughs> And, you know, I mean, I've got that at home, you know. And I think, oh, golly. And and then uh, Johnny on the drums, you know. You know, it's just sort of crashing away. It sounds absolutely dreadful. Because stick him in a school orchestra, and they actually sound quite decent. Because, you know, the errors get sort of covered over by everybody else. (laughs) And uh, that's what it's like when you've got a church that's operating as a team. You know, I've been full of weaknesses. I've been a scratchy violin. So the other staff here. But when everybody joins in, the music's not bad. Music's not bad when you operate like an orchestra. So firstly then, appreciate the ministry of others. May you continue to be a church that prays for one another, that thanks each other for the help and warmth, that offers support and help, and particularly to Matt and the team as they they, uh, lead the church. Firstly, appreciate the ministry of others. Secondly, keep away from divisive teachers. Keep away from 
divisive teachers, verses 17 to 20. It's a shorter paragraph, so let me read it to you. I urge you, brothers, I urge you at the Bible Talks, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you've learned. Keep away from them. For such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. For everyone's heard about your obedience, so I'm full of joy over you. But I want you to be wise about what's good and innocent about what's evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. The apostle says, keep away from divisive teachers. Not everyone who claims to be supporting the gospel is going to do so. And it would appear that as Paul reflects upon the other gospel churches that he's planted and, and as, a, as it were, represents them in sending greetings to them, much as you might across commission congregations, he's reminded of some of the troubles that the other churches have faced from false teachers. Uh, I don't think there's any great sign yet that the false teachers have arrived in great numbers in Rome, but he kind of assumes they will because they're likely to, they always will. Um, the Lord Jesus, the apostles, throughout the New Testament. It's interesting that each of the letters, apart from Jesus, the other two biggest themes are having to suffer, and the other is false teaching. So it's only a matter of time. And uh, it's only a matter of time for the Romans, it's only a matter of time for us. And so he warns them, because he loves them, of potential troublemakers. Now it's interesting, of course, that a couple of chapters earlier, he's been urging them to be tolerant of disagreement about disputable matters. That is, issues upon which the Bible doesn't declare. That is, differences of character, of taste, of of how our consciences react, differences of culture and so on. We need to be tolerant of one another. Uh, We need to uh, be patient with one another. Those who feel very strong and robust in their faith need to be careful not to upset those who have more tender consciences. So he's, he's, he's already preached tolerance on those matters that are outside the Bible's teaching. But where the Bible is quite clear, where the Bible is teaching on scriptural truth, those who deny scriptural truth, well, they're to be avoided. Don't be tolerant of them. Keep well away from them. Now, of course, he warns here that their effect is division. Such people don't just point out biblical distinctions. They actually ferment strife and factions and division amongst believers in the gospel. Of course, you need to work out who actually is causing the division here. Um, It's interesting, of course, the Apostle Paul confronted Peter publicly. Read about it in Galatians 2 because uh, Peter had stopped behaving in accordance with the gospel. He actually stopped eating, socializing with Gentiles for fear of various things we won't go into now. And so the Apostle Paul had to actually confront the Apostle Peter publicly uh, because he was wandering away from the gospel. And you might have caught... You might have gone home from church that day thinking, wow, what, there was real division and disagreement in church today. Paul actually stood up to Peter. Now then, who was causing the schism? It was Peter, not Paul. Paul was calling Peter back to the gospel. It was Peter who was wandering away from the truth of the gospel in the way he was living. Now, of course, I, I, I put it in those terms because unless you've been living on another planet, you'll know that newspapers are absolutely full of the division going on in the Church of England at the moment. And, of course, it, um, I mean, atheists love it, but, of course, it does nothing for the reputation of Jesus, does it, publicly, when there's all this argument and division and so on. But we have to work out who's causing the division here. 
who's causing the schism in the Church of England. It's not those who were meeting in Jerusalem a couple of weeks ago and those who met at All Souls last week, those who love the Bible and are wanting to stand together for what the Bible teaches. They're not causing the schism. The division and schism is being caused by those who are wanting to move away from the Bible, to be more politically correct, and to start preaching a gospel which is not a gospel of salvation through Jesus Christ, but a gospel of affirmation. Whatever you want to do, however you want to live, that's fine, just carry on. That's not the gospel of the Bible. So they are the ones that are causing the division. So the leaders of the Anglican Communion in North America and in Canada and increasingly in this country are walking away from the Bible and they are causing division. And so the the apostle warns about them. He says their teaching is uh, obstacles, literally scandals or stumbling blocks that cause people to give up on faith in Christ. Now, it's interesting that the, uh, the New Testament keeps teaching that there are two ways to do this. You can either tear out pages of the Bible that you find inconvenient, so that is to, to subtract from the truth, or conversely, you can add on lots of extra religious stuff. You see, you can add on uh, law. And so the two dangers are either to slip into license, where you rip out the bits you don't like and you live less than the truth, Or you add on extra bits, extra religion, called law. And there's always that danger to either to subtract into license or to add law. And of course the the classic expressions of that uh, we see all around us are in uh, liberalism. That is where you tear out the pages of the Bible. Of course at the moment in our culture, especially on sexual discipline, you know, let's tear out the bits we don't find convenient, we don't like that, so we'll tear that page out. And we'll just make the Bible as small as it is so that we can live with it. That's subtracting from it. But then, of course, there have always been those who've added, I mean, classically in the Roman Catholic Church, where you add to Christ and invent more mediators like Mary and priests. You add to his death on the cross and add the mass as a sacrifice for sins. Or you add to the Bible and add the teaching of the councils. And you add to faith in Christ and say you must get the sacraments to help you become perfect for heaven. So always adding extra laws onto the teaching of the gospel of the Bible. So beware of those who subtract and from those who add to the truth of the the gospel. The apostle says their motivation is their own appetites, literally their own bellies. Um, He's not talking about food there. He's just saying they teach what they teach in order to indulge themselves. And I think that can be either because they want to excuse what they want to do, or because they want to excuse what other people do so as to be popular. And that's, of course, what's going on at the moment. Uh, A lot of the reason why leaders in the the West uh, who are walking away from the teaching of the Scriptures on sexual matters are doing so either because they want to indulge in sexual immorality or they want to be heard to approve of those who do it because then they'll be more popular in a secular culture. Well, I'm afraid that, uh, that motivation is their own appetite. They're doing it not for Christ. They're not being loyal to the teachings of Christ, even when we find it difficult. They're actually just pleasing themselves. But their method is smooth talk and flattery. The enemies of the gospel have never lacked rhetorical skills. They've uh, never lacked urbane and sophisticated rhetoric. They'll have good media skills. And of course, because the world will love what they say. Because it's just what the world wants to hear, so as to carry on and not submit to Jesus. 
Of course, their, their, their particular um, uh, method for doing that, and you'll hear this again and again, it's happened uh, on uh, issues of sexual behavior and many others as well. People who want to avoid what the Bible teaches will, will say this generally. What the Bible says there in that passage is only applied to a particular context then. And they invent ideas about what the particular context could be so as to say, and therefore it doesn't apply to us today. Now, of course, it's important to work hard at the interpretation of every text. It's important to work hard at what the context is. But they're trying to invent contexts. They're trying to invent reasons not to listen to the teachings of the Bible. They're not there in the text. In fact, they know it. Most of them admit it. But they want to say, well, that teaching then doesn't apply to us today. And you'll hear that. And they'll do it very smoothly. And they'll sound very intelligent. And the truth is they don't know what they're talking about. What they're doing is they're, they're trying to avoid the plain meaning of the text. Why would they do that? Well, verse 19, there's a little word in the original missing there. For everyone has heard about your obedience. As I'm full of joy of you, but I want you to be wise about what's good and innocent about what's evil. For everyone has heard about you, I assume means that the Roman churches are in good health. He said they're mature in faith. So he's saying it won't be long before the false teachers arrive. You see, false teachers are not interested in emptying, declining churches. False teachers are interested in gathering the following of the thriving, lively churches. So a church like TBT that is full of young people and full of life and people are becoming Christians, this is very attractive. Somebody will want to arrive at this church and think, this, this church would be great if I could just only recruit these people to, 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 the, to the particular cause that's mine. That would be marvelous. So the apostle warns the Romans, as I warn you, it's only a matter of time. And we've dealt with people like that before. We've arrived and, you know, they've got a different sort, kind of approach. Well, they don't get made leaders here because we protect you from that. And uh, you need to watch out for them as well. well. Verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. God actually wants peace. But peace on the basis of truth. That is unity in the truth. That's what the Spirit promotes. And so the God of peace, who longs for the day when we shall all be at peace in the gospel, that was what was so exciting about being at Jerusalem uh, with the great uh, Gafcon meeting there, was to find people of every culture in the world, uh, so colorful and so rich in diversity, united in the same gospel. It was so thrilling to be with people, to be with archbishops and bishops that actually teach the same gospel we teach here every Sunday, unashamed to do so in clear, plain language that everybody could understand. That's what was so exciting to experience that unity in truth that is God's desire for us. And therefore, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The apostle sees in the divisive false teaching and uh, distraction of these false teachers, he sees the work of Satan, who wants to undo unity in Christ. And he says, look, God will one day crush them under his feet. He's thinking, reflecting on Genesis 3 where it's a promise that God will one day crush Satan. And you would not want to be, you would not want to be some of these bishops and leaders when they stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus asked them to explain why they have led people away from him. You would not want to face him on judgment day. Pray for them. But the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you, he says. That is the grace of the gospel. So secondly, keep away from divisive teachers. Uh, it's interesting, the apostle says two things here. It says, firstly, keep away, that is, don't join them. 
Uh, don't, don't think you can win all the arguments with them. Don't waste your time spending all of your time trying to persuade them. You're likely to become compromised yourself. Keep away from them. Don't join with them. Loving enemies includes warning them and calling them back to the gospel. So keep away from them and watch out for them. Now, I have to say that in application uh, to that, um, I was in a meeting with a bishop this Monday and trying very hard to be as conciliatory as possible get, to get some of our young men ordained in a regular fashion. And he absolutely refused to uh, make plain that he would teach the gospel's teaching on homosexual practice and, and other issues. And I just thought to myself, I said to him, why is it that bishops are exempt from the duty to teach the Bible as we are in churches? If someone in a church comes up to me and says, could you explain what the Bible teaches on homosexual practice? I don't say, I'm sorry, I'm the minister here. I don't make public statements. I mean, I mean bizarre. I'm sorry, I'm not prepared to reveal what I truly believe. I'm not prepared to teach you the Bible. The bishops give an oath when they're consecrated that they'll teach sound doctrine and drive away error. Why can we not expect bishops to tell us the truth and to teach the Bible plainly? They did in Jerusalem, didn't seem to find it very hard. I thought to myself, what are we doing trying to join with these people? And I think the implication is, I don't think we can join with them. I don't think we can join with them. isn't Isn't that what this is saying? Keep away from them. Don't get entangled with them. The the vote on Monday at General Synod, contrary to the promises made 10 years ago, voting for uh, women bishops without any provision for those of us who read our Bibles where it says that that women shouldn't be made the leaders of churches. Contrary to the promise and contrary to the Bible, they're making no provision for those. They're actually closing the door behind us. And they're saying there'll be no more people like you in the Church of England. So people that can't accept that view won't be allowed into the Church of England. People that accept that view won't be able to move jobs. It's very serious. I think people are only just waking up to how serious it is. It means that there is no room for people who still believe what the Bible teaches on these issues in the Church of England. Now, the the, uh, the process is not over yet. And pray that enough leverage can be applied to open up a possibility for evangelicals to keep working. But my dear friends... We cannot pretend that we can just work with this system forevermore. There comes a point at which you have to say, keep away from them. In other words, I'm with those from the Anglican communion around the world who still teach the Bible. And I'm not with those who don't. So keep away from divisive teachers. Thirdly and lastly, praise God for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise God for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verses 21 to 27, I won't read the greetings, just go from verse 25. Now to him who is able to establish you by my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all nations might believe and obey him. To the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. May TBT continue to be a church that appreciates the ministry of others, that keeps away from divisive teachers, and praises God for the gospel of Jesus Christ. May this building ring with the praises of this congregation for the gospel of Jesus Christ. This remarkable last paragraph is a very carefully constructed conclusion. It revives some themes from the very first paragraph of the letter, drawing attention to the gospel that the apostle has explained in between the two bookends. 
And he wants to give glory to God. As he, as he ponders the gospel that he's explaining, his heart overwhelms with praise for God. And as he's worked in his ministry, he wants to, to uh, uh, acknowledge the fact that God has been at work through him. You know, his church planting ministry, his, his gospel preaching ministry like mine and everybody else's, we're merely the instruments of God's great mission. God has been work. God has been busy through the Apostle Paul and through all who teach the gospel. And so he gives praise where it's due to God. He says, look, this gospel can establish you. That is, God can keep you to the end. Through this gospel, the gospel of Romans, God can make you strong and stable to survive through all things in life, through temptations and through trials, and even to survive through judgment itself into eternity. Cling to this gospel. You know, what a joy it would be to meet you again in 30 years' time. If I'm still around, how will I be 77? Just, just to, hopefully just about there. And to meet you and to find you're still believing the same gospel of the scriptures. Because this is the gospel that can keep you to the end. It can establish you stable and strong in life. Moreover, this gospel proclaims Jesus Christ according to the prophets. He's summarizing what he's taught. The gospel is about Jesus so it's not about himself, it's not about his church, it's not about even the Father or the, the, the Spirit, it's about Jesus. The saving gospel concerns Jesus. That is, of course, the crucified Galilean, the one who lived in history, but not any old Jesus, version of that Jesus, the one who is the Christ. That is the promised Saviour and Lord, the King, promised in the Old Testament. Now, he was promised in the Old Testament, and he is made, made plain in the New He says that this was a mystery hidden for so long, but now the eternal God has made him known in the gospel that Paul uh, teaches. I think the simplest way to understanding this is like like a jigsaw. If you read the Bible from the beginning to the end, you start putting in the pieces of the jigsaw. You know, you do the edge first, don't you? Yeah, so, you you know, Genesis, there you put a big one in there, and Exodus, massive one there, and and you work around. You see, and the picture begins to make sense. And as you go through the Bible, more and more pieces you put in But you get to the Old Testament, there's still a massive one missing right in the middle. And that's Jesus Christ. And with the New Testament, with the gospel of Christ that the apostle preaches, in goes the big massive piece that goes into the middle. And now the picture, you know, you knew a lot already, but it just wasn't totally clear. The mystery is revealed, and it's Jesus. Jesus in the context of the Old Testament. And the whole jigsaw is now complete. So the gospel is now plain. This gospel that Jesus is the Christ, the Lord and Saviour. This gospel is for all nations, he says. As promised to Abraham, this gospel is a blessing for all nations to believe and obey. Uh, Notice that uh, he says that all nations might believe and obey him. It's not just one or the other. See, it's not just faith in Christ for my salvation with no impact on the way I live which is what many people want it to be. All right? You can't put your faith in Christ as your saviour and not have him as your Lord and therefore live differently. But neither is it just obedience without faith. It's not just moral improvement without the, imper- the, the motivation and the power to change. The obedience of Christianity comes from faith in Christ. And so the apostle has always taught that it's faith and obedience, the obedience of faith that comes from this gospel preached 
to all nations. It's a gospel for all nations. And that's why I'm thrilled that this church is really developing its uh, multi-cultural, uh, multinational ministry here in London. As the, as the nations, as the peoples gather in London, we have such an opportunity to reach people of all backgrounds here in London. And I trust and pray that the, the ministry here will continue to care not just for a white Londoners, but for people of all backgrounds uh, living here in London. And that is the impact of this gospel. It drives us to the people of all nations. And this gospel is, he says, finally, for God's glory. It's for God's glory. The gospel the apostle has explained in Romans, the gospel that I've been preaching here so poorly for many years, over the last seven years, this gospel is for the glory of God. Paul's heart surges with praise as he ends his greatest work, as he's explained the gospel of God, as he reflects on the fact that all history has been shaped by God to accomplish the glory of his name. As he describes how God has used him to preach Christ, he's overcome by the privilege. This is the gospel that can establish his readers, and he's filled with praise for God for this gospel. He describes God as the only God, for there is only one, the others are all inventions, idolatrous inventions. He describes this God as wise for his salvation plan. It's so amazing, so incredible, so amazingly wise. He says his glory will never end in this world and forevermore. We'll just become more and more amazed at how glorious God is. And as we sit in the the crowd in heaven and listen to Jesus answering all our questions and explaining the gospel yet more, and we'll have aha moment over aha moment. Oh, that's why. Now I understand. How amazing. How did you think that up? How wonderful that is. And you're quieting down. There's the next bit. You explain a bit. Oh, wow, amazing. Overcome. We get get those sort of fleeting moments in this life, don't we? You know, just brief moments of kind of of thrill and satisfaction, but they're very sort of flawed. But then it'll be complete and eternal and permanent, permanently thrilled by the glory of God as we enjoy his greatness and give him the glory that he deserves. And so he's overwhelmed with the beautiful splendor of the God who has made this gospel known that we might be saved. So as the apostle ends his letter, As I end my ministry as your senior pastor here, can I urge you, as the apostle urged the Romans, be a church that appreciates the ministry of others. Be a church that keeps away from divisive teachers. Don't be naive. Watch out for them and keep away from them. And be a church that praises God for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let your hearts and let this church be full of praise for the news about Jesus Christ, our Saviour and our Lord. And may it all be to the glory of God alone. Let's pray. We pray, Heavenly Father, that we might be people, that this might be a congregation that appreciates the ministry of others. May we be slow to complain and quick to encourage, to support, to help, to contribute, whatever we can, to the gospel ministry of this church. May this continue to be a truly team effort. May we be a church that appreciates the ministry of others. May this be a church that keeps away from divisive teachers. Would you help this church not to be naive, 
but as Jesus and the apostles constantly warned, to recognize those whose effect is division, who put obstacles in the way of faith, who to please themselves with smooth talk. We pray, Lord God, you'd help us to be with those who preach the gospel and to keep away from those who don't. May this continue to be a church that stands up for the gospel, even when it's costly. And we pray, Lord God, this church will be a church that continues to praise God for the gospel of Jesus Christ. How we praise you for Jesus. We thank you for him as he's drawn each one of us to him. Thank you that our unity is in him. We thank you for this great gospel that can establish us for eternity. This gospel all about Jesus Christ according to the Old Testament. This gospel that's for people of all backgrounds, even us here in London. And this gospel which is intended for your glory. And we want this evening to give you glory for this gospel. This gospel which we preach, this gospel which is our, our joy and our common task. Thank you for making Jesus Christ known to us. And we pray that we would never cease to praise you for this gospel. That our hearts individually during the week, together, whenever we get together, on Sunday evenings may be full of praise for this gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray that this praise might grow in our hearts, whatever life throws at us, that for eternity we might be full of praise to you, that to you might be all the glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.